Hello. Today we're going to speak on a difficult subject, abortion. It's a topic that is filled with landmines, can quickly create divisions, and is emotionally supercharged. It can be deeply personal, and depending on where you stand on the subject, to take a stand against abortion can seem callous, if not oppressive. So why do it? Why talk about it? Why risk it? Today in Canada, there are no abortion laws. None. Every year, we have approximately 80 to 100,000 abortions that occur every year in our country. According to the World Health Organization, 40 to 50 million abortions occur, occur worldwide yearly. That's 120,000 abortions per day. To put that into perspective, to date, 1.2 million people have had their deaths attributed to the coronavirus. COVID-19 has shut down our borders, closed economies, put people in place. It's the top of the news. It's the dominant thing in our minds. 1.2 million people, each death a tragedy. We have that many abortions every 10 days. Hey, I'm an evangelical minister of a, of a Christian church. It's probably no surprise that I'm going to be speaking from a pro-life perspective, but I have to ask us, if the pro-life perspective is right and true, is there a more important human rights and health issue in our world today? We must talk about it. I'm fully aware that this subject does bring onto some people shame, and it's not my intention to heap guilt on anyone. And if that's how this makes you feel, I would just ask you to keep listening because we, as we talk about being pro-life, I believe that there are words of life for all of us on this subject. I am under no illusion that I'm going to be able to convince those who are fully entrenched in a pro-choice position. My hope today is three things. First of all, number one, that in listening or watching this, there may be someone who is considering having an abortion that will change their mind to consider life instead. Secondly, that I would be able to speak to those who are in the middle and move them more to the point where they feel more compelled to advocate for the life of the unborn. Thirdly, that I will be able to equip some of us to engage in credible and compelling conversation with those who might be considering an abortion or for those who are in the middle. When I was in my 20s, I was in Vancouver at a financial course and there was a number of us there, 12, 15 people. And during one of the breaks, the subject of abortion came up and it was obvious from those in the room, the way they were talking about it, even jokingly, that they were all in support of abortion. I said nothing. Not because I didn't believe abortion was wrong, but because I didn't know what to say. Scott Klusendorf and Mark Newman are pro-life advocates who, when they speak on the subject, reduce it to a very clear argument. It's a syllogism which goes like this. Statement number one, it is wrong to kill an innocent human being. Secondly, abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Thirdly, therefore, abortion is wrong. We're going to look at this subject from three different perspectives. First of all, science, then philosophy, lastly, religion. So, it is wrong to kill an innocent human being. Probably there will not be much pushback on that first statement. If you're sitting with someone who uh, doesn't agree with that statement, you may want to change location. The question becomes, what is a human being? When is someone a human being? We need to look to science for that. It's not unusual to hear about a woman who has an entity in her womb for that to be referred to as uterine contents or pregnancy tissue or a blob. Are those, the, are those the right words to call that? Or do they cloud the true entity, the true identity of what's in, within a woman's womb? Well, let's let science speak to that issue. When at first the male sperm 
penetrates the ovum or the woman's egg, immediately there's a new cell, a new entity that is formed. Scientists call it the zygote, and it has within it all the potential for a fully-fledged human being. So is it a person? Is it a human being? Or is it just a blob of cells? Well, let's hear what the scientists say. We'll look at some science textbooks. First of all, Human development begins at fertilization when a sperm fuses with an oocyte to form a single cell, the zygote. This highly specialized totipotent cell, that means capable of giving rise to any cell type, marks the beginning of each of us as a unique individual. In the book, Human Embryology and Teratology, although life is a continuous process, Fertilization is a critical landmark because under ordinary circumstances, a new genetically distinct human organism is thereby formed. And in Patton's Foundations of Embryology, the time of fertilization represents the starting point in the life history or ontogeny, meaning development, of the individual. In 2017, the American College of Pediatricians put out this statement. The predominance of human biological research confirms that human life begins at conception, fertilization. At fertilization, the human being emerges as a whole, genetically distinct, individuated, psychotic living human organism, a member of the species, Homo sapiens, needing only the proper environment in order to grow and develop. The difference between the individual in its adult stage and in its zygotic stage is one of form, not nature. This statement focuses on the scientific evidence of when an individual human life begins. When the zygote is formed, it contains within it um, the human DNA and human molecule, human, other human molecules. Uh, it will not become a different species. It will not become a cat or dog. It consists of contribution of DNA from its mother and father, but it has a unique DNA to itself. And it's like once it's formed, it presses the go button and it sets into motion a complex series of events that, that prepares it for rapid development. At 22 days, the cardiovascular system is already functioning within that, that unborn child. At four weeks, it begins to have the formation of hands and fingernails, of eyes, by five or by six or seven weeks, they can already detect the heartbeat and brain waves. By the end of week eight, the fully, there are fully developed structures of organs and bodily structures. Fast forward to week 10 and the, and the unborn child is beginning to move around. They can see that it's opening and closing its mouth and its hands. Fast forward to week 12 and week 12 and the development is so far that uh, miscarriage is, is very unlikely after that point. And then fast forward to week 17, and that unborn baby, its movement can begin to be felt by its mother. Oh, it's kicking. I remember the first times with our first child. Amazing, surreal, human, alive. I'll never forget in June of 2018, for Father's Day, we were sitting around a table and my kids were bringing me little gifts and cards. It's so nice to be appreciated that way. And as I opened my card from my oldest daughter and her husband, inside of it was a picture of an ultrasound. It took a few seconds for the penny to drop, but I soon realized that they were telling me they're pregnant with child. Such a beautiful picture. When I juxtapose that picture beside the picture of an abortion, it's hard to rectify. In 2015, Dr. Anthony Levitino testified before the Judiciary uh, Committee, before the House of Representatives in the United States. He described to them what a second trimester abortion is like. 
He described in detail a DNE, a dilate and evacuation abortion. He showed a clamp that is inserted into the woman's body. It's about just over a foot long. And on the end of it, it has a sharp teeth, which are used to grasp. He says the doctor inserts that into the women and begins to feel around. It's a blind procedure and he begins to grasp. He will clamp onto something and pull it out. He'll get an arm, place it on a table. He'll stick the instrument back inside the woman, grasp onto something and pull it out. He'll proceed to do this until he has dismembered and completely um, dislodged the baby and, and pulled it out, out of the woman's womb and placed it on a table. When he's done, they scrape the woman's uterus to make sure there's no small pieces that have been left behind. And then they reassemble the parts on the table to make sure that they haven't missed anything because that would create infection in the woman. Whether it's a first uh, second trimester, first trimester, the results are the same. The, the unborn child's body parts are put on the table. They reassemble and make sure they haven't missed anything. In a first trimester, they use a suction instrument, typically that has 10 to 20 times the power of a household vacuum. Naomi Wolf, who uh, was a feminist and strong supporter of the abortion movement, sort of broke ranks in 1995 when she spoke very um, unveiled words. Clinging to rhetoric about abortion in which there is no life and no death, we entangle our beliefs in a series of self-delusions, fibs, and evasions. We need to contextualize the fight to defend our abortion rights within a moral framework that admits that the death of the fetus is a real death. Camille Paglio is perhaps even more straightforward. I have always frankly admitted that abortion is murder, the extermination of the powerless by the powerful, Liberals, liberals, for the most part, have shrunk from facing the ethical consequences of their embrace of abortion, which results in the annihilation of concrete individuals and not just clumps of insensate tissue. Faye Waddleton, who was the um, long-term long president of Planned Parenthood, said this, I think we have deluded ourselves into believing that people don't know that abortion is killing. So any pretense that abortion is not killing is a signal of our ambivalence a signal that we cannot say, yes, it kills a fetus. Hey, if you've ever known someone who has had a miscarriage, or maybe you've had a miscarriage, you know the pain that goes along with that. Why the grief? Because we know. We know that's a living human being that has been inside of us. Science has shown conclusively that the entity inside a woman is not a blob of tissue it's not uterine contents. It is, in fact, a living human being. It is wrong to kill an innocent human being. Abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Therefore, abortion is wrong. Now let's look at philosophy. Science aside, you might think that the argument around abortion should be over, but it hasn't. If you know anything about the, art, the debate around abortion and pro-life, it now switches to a more philosophical question, and the baby is still at risk. Granted, it's a human being, but is it a person? This now becomes the question. From a pro-life position, the answer is yes. From conception, it's, it's a person and deserves all the protection and rights of any human being. You're probably familiar with the term Roe v. Wade. It's the court decision that happened in the United States in 1973. There, Justice Harry Blackman said this, the word person, as used in the 14th Amendment, does not include the unborn. 
This touches on the idea of personhood theory, that a being becomes a person at some point. And yet nobody really agrees on it and when it happens because it's not based on science, it's based on a philosophical determination. Stephen Schwartz, who is a pro-life advocate, he has um, basically put it into an acronym as to the different categories that people like to use to draw the line when personhood begins. He uses the acronym SLED, size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. So as you hear these things and look at them, you gotta ask yourself this question. You really have to ask this question. What if these criteria were applied to me? Is that the kind of world that I wanna live in? Size, for example. So a zygote is small, but it rapidly develops and grows. Toddlers grow into teenagers. Teenagers grow into fully formed adults. At what point is, is someone more of a person than another point? Hey, I think it's a lousy criterion. I grew up in high school as a late bloomer. I was always so small. Was I of less value then of, than other students? Is this the kind of world we want to live in? Then there's level of development. The idea here is that an unborn child can't be a person because they don't have consciousness, they're unaware, they can't communicate. Is that a good criterion for personhood? So you're in a car accident and you lose consciousness. Are you no longer a person and they have the right to kill you? Is that the kind of world you wanna live in? Then there's environment. The idea here is that the unborn child does not become a person until they're outside of the mother's womb. So think about if this makes sense. The unborn child is about to be born. It's moving through the birth canal. Not a person, not a person, not a person, not a person. And then magically out of the womb, a person. Does that make sense? Especially given in light of the fact that so many babies now can be born premature and with science and medicine, live fully formed, fully developed, healthy lives. Here's Samuel Armas, 21, good looking young man. Here's Samuel Armas at 21 weeks. At 21 weeks, little Samuel was diagnosed with a potential spina bifida. The surgeons decided they wanted to go in and correct what they saw there so that he would have a better life going forward. The procedure involved pulling the uterus out of the woman, um, draining the fluid, and then performing the procedure on Samuel. They then put the uterus back into the woman, sewed her up. As this happened, you can see the baby's hand appeared outside of the cavity of the woman. Um, photographer Michael Clancy was there um, to take pictures because this was a, a very important event in the medical world. And as he did, he saw the baby's hand. So the baby's hand is now outside of the womb. Is it partial person? When it was out and they did the surgery on it, was it full person? And now they put it back inside of the womb, it's no longer a person? Do you see these, do these arbitrary distinctions make sense? Julie Armas, Samuel's mother, said this when she saw the photo. The photo reminds us a pregnancy isn't about disability or an illness. It's about a little person. Closely connected to environment is the criterion of degree of dependency. The idea here is that a child, an unborn child, can't possibly be a person because it's completely dependent upon its mother for survival. Is that a good criterion? What about a toddler? Aren't they dependent? Are they not a person? Would it be all right to kill them? Think about some of the people you know. Do you know anyone with Alzheimer's? Can they function on their own? They can't? Are they no longer a person? Would it be all right to kill them? Think about yourself. What if you contracted COVID-19 and it hit you so badly that you could no longer breathe on your own? They had to ventilate you and you're completely dependent on others to survive. Are you no longer a person? Would it be all right to kill you? You see, with personhood theory, what it does is it dehumanizes people. 
And in human history, whenever we've done that, it leads to moral catastrophe. Once we know that the unborn child is a living human being, a person, then all rationale to kill them come into question, even the hard cases, such as rape. And I can't imagine the difficulty that a woman must go through having been violated and then finding out that she's also with child and the journey that she will have to go through if she keeps her baby and carries it full term and, and goes beyond that. The criminal gets five to 10 years in prison perhaps, but what about the other innocent third party, the unborn child? If it's a living human being, should it get the death sentence? See, once we know that the unborn child is a living human being, no matter what stage, person, all rationale to kill them come into great question, even the right to choose. I think we all understand what it's like to live in a civil, humane society. We restrict, restrict our personal rights when it affects other people's personal rights. For example, I can go to a shooting range, take a gun and shoot at targets all that I want, but I can't take that gun and shoot you. And so it is for the rights of a woman. She can do so many things, so many rights, up until a certain point where it affects another human being, including the human being that exists within her womb, many of which are also girls. Once we know that the, the unborn child is a living human being, a person inside the womb, and all rationale to kill them come into great question, no matter what the circumstance, no matter its financial difficulty, no matter if it seems the unborn child will be unwanted, no matter if there's oppression, no matter, no matter if there's shame, if there's guilt. We don't want to live in a world where a living human being is justifiably killed. So that's science, that's philosophy. Now let's look at this subject from the perspective of religion and in particular, the perspective of Christianity. In Christianity, we are given a book called the Bible, which reveals to us what God is like, what he cares about, what's important to him. And as we read, even in the first pages, we find out that human beings are of great value to him. You and I mean a lot to him. It goes all the way back to creation and we discover our value in the way that God created us. This is what he says in Genesis chapter one. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them and God blessed them. In verse 31, it says, And God saw everything they had made, and behold, it was very good. As God goes through um, creation in, in Genesis chapter 1, it talks about how he calls it good, he calls it good, he calls it good, and then after he's made mankind, he calls it very good. Mankind is very, very precious in the sight of God. We are stamped, we are created in the image of God. C.S. Lewis, the Christian philosopher, thinker, said, You have never met a mere mortal. In other words, you and I, we're, we're stamped in the very image of God. We are embodied image bearers of the Most High God. Nancy Piercy in her book, Love Thy Body, talks about how abortion tries to separate the, the body as an image bearer from the person. She says, the core question in abortion then is the status of the human body. Is the human body an integral part of the person sharing in its dignity? Or is it extrinsic to the person, a piece of matter that we can control and manipulate any way we want, like driving a car? The unborn child, no matter how far along it is, whether it's a zygote or whether it's an embryo, whether it's a fetus, has value, not because of what it can do or what it looks like, its size, its level of development, its environment or its degree of dependency. It has value because of what it is in creation, an image bearer of God. 
In Genesis 4, we read soon after creation how man fell away and immediately violence and murder becomes part of their story. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. We read these places in scripture where God takes notice of blood, um, innocent blood in particular. In Psalm chapter 106, we read, they serve their idols, speaking of the children of Israel, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, with whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. And throughout the Old Testament, you read stories of violence and innocent blood being shed, and it's, it seems so hopeless, except God continues to promise that a day of reckoning, a day of making right is gonna come. That's the story of the gospel, that God created us, that we fell away from him, but he sent a redeemer. God's gonna come in his person. He's going to come in a body. You know, sometimes people say, ah, the Bible doesn't really speak about the subject of abortion. And I think we've already seen how in Genesis 1, how clearly it talks about the value of humanity and how God sees humanity. And as you look through scripture, you see, for example, David, how he recognized that God saw him. In Psalm 139, David writes, I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet they were none of them. So we saw in Genesis 1, God values the human person and in Psalm 139, he values that person in the womb. But I think there's a more compelling argument that's part of the gospel story in how God sent his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came in a body. And in Jesus, the concepts of rights and humanity are brought into full focus. Jesus didn't come as a king on the clouds. He came as an entity within a woman's womb. The angel appears to Mary and he says to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. The Virgin Mary will conceive. Do you get what that means? Jesus, God, came as a zygote, then an embryo, then a fetus, then a newborn child, then grew into adulthood. Talk about giving value to the human body and to human life right from conception. And Mary will be shamed in her community as an unwed mother, but will gladly carry the Son of God to full term. And Jesus will go about the earth walking around in his body He'll have a ministry and then at the appointed time, he will give up his body to die on a cross and shed his blood so that all those who believe in him can have their sins forgiven. All the things that you and I have done wrong in Christ Jesus as we accept him and put our faith and trust in him, they can be forgiven, our slate wiped clean and we can know that we have a future in a relationship with God forever. And one day, 
we're going to be given new bodies as we live with Jesus in a new heaven and a new earth. That's a world I want to live in. That's where I want to be. The followers of Jesus Christ stand on a foundation of pro-life. There's no place for condemnation. It's a place of reconciliation, forgiveness, redemption, future, prosperity, life. And I know that the subject brings about so much shame and guilt for so many people. But what you need to know is that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel spoke of, God, make things right. The blood of Jesus speaks, I have made things right. He's done it for you. And if you come to him, he can forgive you. He can wipe away your shame and your guilt. And you've been carrying it even as a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. Hear his words over you. You don't need to carry it anymore. You are forgiven. And the church of Jesus Christ, we need to be reminded that we are people of the redeemed. We are people who have been forgiven. That there is no place for condemnation. But that in fact, when someone among us is suffering from abortion or is thinking of having an abortion or wondering, are they going to be judged? that we can be the kind of community that extends the same kind of grace and mercy that we ourselves have received because of the gospel. And if a person is thinking, contemplating an abortion, that we would be willing as a community to walk with that person through that pregnancy right to the other side, whether it's for adoption or whether it's to raise that child as a mother. We could do that right now. Community groups can do that right now. Come alongside an unwed mother for that purpose. That's the kind of world that I think we should be living in. You know, there are so many people that were formerly involved in abortions that are now people that have been redeemed and speaking life. Abby Johnson, who was a rising star in Planned Parenthood. Um, there's a movie called Unplanned that was made based on her life. Dr. Anthony Levitino, who I mentioned earlier, a man who performed over 1,200 abortions now as a man who speaks on behalf of the unborn child, that they are a living human being that should be valued, that should have great worth, just like the rest of us. All of us have a place. We are redeemed people of God, and we have words to speak of life. We have words of life to live. We need to come alongside other people and help them as they make decisions, but we also need to learn how to speak with grace and with truth and with mercy, to speak up for those who have no voice for themselves. As it says in Proverbs chapter 31, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. I wanna encourage you to become informed on the issue of abortion and the pro-life position. Learn what it means to speak on behalf of those who cannot speak for themselves. Engage in conversation. You can do so in a way that exhibits mercy, grace, and truth. But simply asking the question, what do you think about abortion, may open up a conversation where one by one we can change the cultural landscape of the world that we live in. I want to live in a world that speaks life. How about you?